Welcome to the Wholehearted Eating Podcast, where non-diet nutrition, weight-inclusive care, and integrative health collide. We're your hosts, Dana Montes and Christina Hoyt, licensed integrative clinical nutritionists and body image coaches. And we believe you deserve to have a joyful relationship with food in your body, even if you have a chronic health condition or symptoms that just won't quit. On this show, together and with our guests, we're bringing the real talk, no BS5 with tangible tools to help you pursue health and wellness without obsession or restriction. Remember our disclaimer, this podcast is meant for general information purposes only and should not be taken as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hey friends, and welcome back to the Wholehearted Eating Podcast. So this week, Christina and I are digging deeper into the topic of intuitive fitness and how to make fitness and dance and yoga a more inclusive space for all bodies. So our guest today is Larkin Silverman, who is a self-proclaimed vinyasa vixen who teaches accessible, inclusive, empowering, body-neutral, and trauma-informed group and private fitness classes. For Larkin, these movement modalities are an act of reckoning and reclamation. And so in today's episode, she's going to be sharing these deeply liberative practices and mindset shifts with you in podcast form as she aims to do as a teacher with all of her classes. On the episode today, we are digging into some juicy topics like gaslighting in the fitness industry and how fitness instructors can feed negative body image conversations that make people feel like this practice or this class is not for them. We're also going to be talking about how Larkin was able to cultivate a safer space for herself in a very fat phobic industry while existing in a larger body. And also we're going to be talking about the enormous amount of pressure that is put on postpartum bodies and what needs to change in the messaging directing towards moms and postpartum bodies to create a more safe and inclusive space. Thank you, Larkin, so much for coming on the podcast today. We are so excited to hear what you have to say and to chat with you and, you know, all of the things. And um, for those of you who don't know, Larkin is here in Philadelphia where I am. And I actually ran into her this morning (laughs) outside um, on our, like on our, both on our ways to go get delicious um, Fritter Fridays. And um, so for those of you who are in Philadelphia, uh, we highly recommend you check out Okie Dokie Donuts. Um, but that's not why we're here today. We're here. <laughs> I mean, we're I, here. Could, I could legitimately talk about Fritter Friday for hours. So if you need Easily. me to, we can do that. Easily. I could as well. In fact, Dana hears me talk about it every Friday. <laughs> <laughs> um, but why we, why we really wanted to talk to you today was you did this post um, recently on Instagram that to me was just so... I just loved it so much. And I wanted to, the first thing I thought was I need to talk to Larkin more about this journey to get to this place. You had posted um, about how you came to fitness because of internalized fat phobia, but you stayed, and I'm going to quote you directly, for the Mm. radically liberative power that you found therein. And when I heard that and read it, and when Dana read it, we both thought to ourselves, oh, snap. (laughs) like that is incredible and we wanted to know about what led to that liberative power that you found and what was that journey like for you um because it's such a unique thing to say and not a lot of people have that type of arc with fitness and so we wanted to hear more about that from you cool um well I think about arc is still unfolding and like the day that I snapped that selfie and wrote that caption like that was true for me in that moment um you know but then I have days like yesterday where I feel this um nagging pressure like I must work out for a certain amount of time and I must hit the calorie ring goal on my apple watch and I must 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 and it feels very much um like compulsion and some disordered stuff so I think I just want to like state that because I think it's really, really important to acknowledge that we all have good body days and shitty body days and neutral body days and everything in between um, and even greater days. So I think it's taken me 
it's taken me quite a while and honestly some very frank discussions with clients to sort of come to that self-realization um you know the deep irony is just by virtue of being a fitness instructor in a bigger body that makes me stand out and that means that even if and when I was intentionally engaging in weight loss or self-harm through fitness clients didn't necessarily um have insight into that or I wasn't even able to recognize it just because walking around a studio in a bigger body was a form of representation that you don't often get and it also gives people in bodies that don't look like the quote-unquote fitness norm to have permission to show up to my classes and to move um so I started I started doing yoga in grad school really, really seriously. Um, and I spent, you know, kind of long before grad school, long before undergrad, I spent my last two years in high school at this magical, ridiculous Quaker boarding school where um, sports, which for some reason are called checkout, I probably should have learned why they were called that, checkout was required. Um, and I danced. And the school was like a 45 minute commute home. So I was the wild, overworked, type A, overcompensating good fat kid who not only did two and a half plus hours of dance rehearsals after the academic day on campus, I then um, would make my poor dad drive out to Chester County, take me to my home dance studio, have two more hours of rehearsal there, and then drive back late at night. So growing up in dance, like we were talking about this as moms to our kids who both have wiggly tendencies now in their toddlerhood who might wanna um, go into dance class in a post COVID world. Dance is amazing. It's this like beautiful, innate sense of uh, self-expression and musicality, but dancing is wildly triggering. Um, not only the apparel that you wear, right? Like the leotards and the short skirts and the tights, um, and all of the etiquette that comes with sort of policing a dress code of quote unquote proper dance attire. But the dance world is very, very rooted still in ballet roots, even if you're taking jazz or hip hop or lyrical or modern. Um, and George Balanchine, <laughs> the grandfather of the ballet body and the disordered configurations of what we think is a dancer's body still is so prominent today. Um, I danced all through college and even at this like postmodern avant-garde undergrad school, there's still so, so much ingrained fat phobia. Um, you know, I had rigorous, even for fellow students, um, rigorous auditions where I would sort of keep getting callbacks. And then I was told, well, you don't fit my aesthetic for this piece. Um, so a lot of coded language and then the costume department, and I love every wild and funky costume designer I've ever worked with. Um, but I remember like one particular piece, my costume looked different from everyone because my bust was deemed obscene. So the whole like hemline of my neck was raised with this awful looking extra fabric and none of the other dancers had to do that. Um, and if you've ever worn a white, unitard on a stage like you will absolutely not um be able to kind of turn off the the fat phobia glare I am nodding along because I too have written written worn a uh, white unitard yeah white it unitards is. are specifically pretty intense um so when I moved to Philadelphia for grad school I I'm trying to remember who posted it. Someone posted a really interesting thing. Dana, if it was you, I'm sorry, um, on Instagram about how engaging in eating disorder behavior can sometimes be this really, really convenient way to compartmentalize greater traumas. It's something that you can fixate on and control. So when I moved to Philadelphia, I was getting over the big heartbreak of my early 20s and um entering a grad program at Penn, I did not really feel qualified for, despite the fact that I got in somehow. Um, so I threw myself into trying to shrink my body deliberately, which I succeeded at, 
but that's how I found yoga because I wanted to go to hot yoga and just get sweaty and just get all the fat off my body and get bendier and stronger. And, you know, I would go to hot yoga on top of spin class, on top of body pump, on top of walking back and forth from my West Philly apartment, just carrying every textbook and my laptop. Um, but what I came for, the pursuit of weight loss is not why I stayed because as an ex-dancer who had spent a lifetime trying to mold myself to fit a narrow concept of what the choreography was supposed to look like on and in my body, it was so much fun. Like even if I could never do um, crow pose, just not anatomical, anatomically possible for me, you know, having this like really rigorous practice and even less rigorous some days I just went to like play around on my mat it felt like play and it felt like self-discovery. Um, whether that is kind of a, a tangible metric that most fitness studios would sort of advertise as, as an intended end or mean, um, like getting closer in your split or deeper rather, or getting up into a supported handstand on a wall. Like you have those metrics of effectiveness and those are can be really, really, um, tantalizing and this like high that you ride but also there's more subtle things to find like I tried something and I fell and it was funny and I didn't beat myself up about it or I didn't leave the class with a report card with an f and there was no like panel of academic advisors to critique your silly handstand attempt um, so that's really what I meant by that post like whether it's bar or you know, not that I've gotten my poor bike out in years, but when I used to try cycling pretty seriously, like getting a personal record, just barreling down second street, like towards my house, um, or actually getting all the way up a hill without puking <laughs> or getting up the hill that I had to walk it last time. So I definitely think that it's a fine line for me personally, I'm not saying for everyone, but as someone who has disordered eating, um, and has had it, there's a fine line between the self-discovery and the empowerment and also the self-abuse. Um, so like these days, and we can get into it as a mom, like <laughs> I'm tired enough just picking my baby up. She weighs so much. <laughs> like she wants to be held down, up, down. We run around the house. I'm down on the floor with her, like literally sitting in a straddle stretch, trying to reach some cup she's thrown under the coffee table or something um so these days I'm just trying to give myself a little bit more patience and grace and recognize that when working out or movement does feel like a chore maybe I need to actually practice some distance um and take a little break and reevaluate You've touched on so many amazing little points. And I, I didn't want to interrupt you other than to relate that I too have had to wear a white unitard and they're just absolutely <laughs> awful the in worst. every way. They're also incredibly uncomfortable. Like who wants that like up their ass, you know, and then, you know, and then on display with bright lights, it's just awful. Yeah. Um, yeah. And also, you know, they do it on purpose, you know, they're not, yeah. there's a reason, right. But I think something that you talked about earlier about, um, that I wanted to go back to a little bit because I'd like you to share more about the how the body image played a big role in that for you and kind of this obligation. You've mentioned a couple of times like being good mm-hmm. and also how it sounded like there was this pressure even as a as an instructor in a larger body um, being one representing a larger body in the fitness industry and being in that space but then also the pressure that was associated with that too and kind of that internal um, dialogue that you have with yourself that you, that you shared earlier on, how does that like, how has that affected you and how do you create a safe container for yourself and for other people who, who are looking for the play, um, and how their body image, those body image days that like, I love that you said that it's not just, um, you know, oh yeah, now I've worked on it and it's, yeah. <laughs> and it's all better because we know that's not true. But how do you create that place for yourself to go back to that and to, in knowing that sometimes our body image 
really informs how we move about that, if yeah. making any sense. I think if it was like a year ago and I was still pregnant and a pandemic hadn't changed the landscape of fitness, I would have like a very different answer. Um, you know, because the truth is whether you are representing a marginalized body, a body of color, um, a body of size, a body of differing perceived ability, when you are marked as an instructor, um, gym setting, power inherent in that, right? You are the leader and it's easy for clients to kind of graft and project other things onto you, which, which comes with a student, teacher, student, client relationship. So the very weird thing is, and representation sort of ironically um, as part of this, to go in and take another instructor's class or say you're at a gym to go work out and to be known as sort of a public in a position, you get watched like a hawk, which takes, for me at least, I and I'm not gonna speak for all instructors or all clients, um, but I definitely had days where I felt like I was on display and I was just there to have fun. So like sort of creating a container in that context would mean literally dragging my mat to the furthest corner um, in the back of the room. Um, and just to find ways to remember I was there for me and, and not for anyone else. Um, but also that means there are certain modalities and studios um, that I adore. And COVID, if COVID wasn't a thing, even without that, I wouldn't step into them anymore because I don't want to be judged, um, not just by clients, but by other fit pros who think, oh, you teach fitness, you should be able to do this many push-ups. Like you must suck at your job and not be worthy if you can't do them. Yeah, I don't know if I answered your question at all. <laughs> no, I think you did. And I actually think you led into another layer of it too, is that you've mentioned too, that you're not postpartum, right? And so, yeah. you know, have a postpartum body on top of all of that. So I think, how are you, like, how would you say that some of these things are now affecting that, that that's affecting all of these things too? And for, you know, how is your body image from a postpartum perspective, um, changing too. Yeah. And how are you working through that and, and trying to find that kind of in internal liberation in a new body now too? Yeah. Um, it's very hard. I will not lie. Um, I mean, something oh, that's so interesting to me, and I think I had an Instagram post about it. You know, I've always had a big belly that's just something that um I've thought about and obsessed over like since I was really a pubescent teen um especially because and probably only because media representations of what a woman's body is quote-unquote supposed to look like is a flat not soft belly at all um so I'm positive that had I not gone through pregnancy, um, I would never have known what it felt like to love my belly, which was like such an amazing piece of pregnancy. I mean, I'm, I'm not even 5'2". So I remember when I was trying to look up um, sort of like resources for what it's like to be pregnant in a bigger body, because again, media representations are a svelte, thin female frame with a big, cute bump stuck right on the front. Um, I found some content that sort of cautioned, okay, mama, you might not actually show for a while. So you might not even need to buy maternity clothes because um, you might carry your pregnancy differently, but I'm not even five two. So when the bloating came on and never went away, I had this like huge, cute, gorgeous, just like poof, come off the front of my body. And I did think it was gorgeous because my, I mean, my baby was doing stuff in there and my blood was doing stuff in my guts and it was just so exciting. Um, so being pregnant and getting bigger and bigger and bigger when I've spent so much of my life in pursuit of getting smaller and smaller and smaller was so magical and so beautiful. Um, 
And even, I'm, even now, a year plus postpartum, um, I just taught a private pregnancy um, yoga practice for a friend from college. And I had her set up in heart bench and I was doing it with her over Zoom. And I was talking about, you know, putting your hands on your body and connecting to your baby. And I felt like a phantom kick, which I haven't felt in so long. So that like memory is still there, that visceral memory of carrying my daughter. Um, and on that day, it was magical and amazing. But I definitely have days like yesterday, I was body checking in my mirror. Um, and I was hiking my high-waisted leggings up as high as I could to kind of like flatten my belly closer to my um, abdomen. It's hard. And it's so many um, classes are taught by straight-sized folks. If you're like on the Peloton app or um, doing a virtual class with one of your favorite home studios or taking... Um, like watching a bar DVD or taking a bar class on DVD. When an instructor doesn't have the experience of navigating their own physicality with a large belly, they have no idea that cueing and movement they could be showing might not be possible or available to you at all, just by virtue of having more space to navigate. Um, so I feel really lucky that I have the self-awareness, like my down dog today looks much closer to the down dog I took in my third trimester than the down dog I took in my first trimester because I have more belly fat there, period. Um, but also that means on days when I feel like it's a problem to navigate the belly itself, it's a problem to manage, I change my plan. Instead of like staying on the, the Peloton bike and my belly is hitting my thighs, I bail, I finish my ride, I'll go get in a heart bench, something that makes me feel spacious, maybe make my movement a little bit more gentle, or I'll focus on um, a plank series instead of a crunch series. I think it's hard to, without talking to someone who has a bigger belly and a bigger body, um, like I, I just feel thankful that I have this practice of um, my training and my awareness and having gone through pregnancy because it makes me so sad to think about folks who now are in a bigger body and don't have access to those resources and keep contorting themselves into shapes that literally pinch and hurt. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all of that. And I think it's really important to, you know, even us as instructors or professionals or experts or whatever the heck you want to call us in different fields, right? But to mention that like nobody is 100% super body positive all day, every day, yeah. all the time, right? Because yeah. the fact that some people kind of project that image we find is an obstacle to some people even starting to pursue body neutrality, which is way right. before all of that, right? So what are some of the go-to tools and kind of strategies that you use in addition to being more intuitive with the movement that you're doing to protect your mental and emotional health and kind of cultivate resilience when you're having a bad body image day? Great question. I think it all starts and ends with social media more than I would care to admit. Um, I love to hit the mute button immediately. Like if, and I, I, it makes me sad to say that, but, um, in a world that prioritizes aesthetics specifically for women and femmes and on the Instagram app where there's so, so, you know, Instagram face is a thing. There's so much hidden use of filters and third-party applications. Um, and not that there's anything wrong with it, but plastic surgery and injectables have become so much more common, but folks aren't sharing like what they've done. So it just perpetuates, it's like moving the goalpost <laughs> continually of what is achievable um, and what is commercial and what's marketable on these apps. So like I, especially a year into the pandemic parenthood, I, my little cell phone is like my lifeline to the outside world. So if I'm on Instagram all day, I have to make it a place that doesn't trigger me or make me more jealous 
or stick me, um, get me really stuck in comparison. So I very, very, very seldom use the discovery page. Um, I don't look at reels because they all look the same. I posted my first reel yesterday. It was not a reel. It was like a little advert I made on Canva because I was like, I'm not filming a reel. Um, yeah, and I just try and find bodies that look more like mine or look nothing like mine in a way that's um, real and and not through a filter. Um, there's some amazing accounts like, I think they're called Dance for All Bodies. So they do classes for amputees and folks in wheelchairs. I love their feed. Even if I'm not taking one of their dance classes, I'm just like, oh, <laughs> like this looks like my family and my friends. Um, and also sometimes I need to just get off the apps and put my phone far, far away and just hang out with my baby. And having a baby is pretty great for a body positive day or a body positive practice. Um, yeah, because every little like bump and roll is the sweetest, most beautiful, most tender thing you've ever seen. So it's hard to get stuck in feeling shitty in your own body when I'm like, literally just want to nibble on her luscious leggies all day, you know? <laughs> so that's one of my practices, cuddle a baby if you can. Oh my gosh. I know exactly what you mean about the like nibbling. It's like, oh, they're yeah, so delicious. They're so cute. <laughs> I remember saying that to um, to Casey one day when Elodie was probably about Alma's age now, like when she, almost mm-hmm. a year and Elodie is a year older than, than Larkin's daughter. And I remember, um, maybe I even said it to you. I don't know. But I remember saying to Casey specifically, at what point do these delicious chunky little thighs become undelicious and I don't ever want Elodie to ever think of her thighs as undelicious and so it's like for those bad body image days and I know that like I love the tool that you use about social media I think it's so important I love that Alma is also another tool that you use because Elodie's my tool too every time I'm having a a bad body image day or I'm doing my own body checking, I call myself out and I say, would I ever want Elodie to do that? Hell no. So lock it up, (laughs) lock it up, work on it, go snuggle her, tell her how beautiful like her body is exactly as she is. Um, I actually just, um, and I actually cried. You should, if you don't have it, if people don't have this book, um, we'll put it in the show notes. I want every parent to get it. And also, honestly, any any person needs to get this book. Are you about to but, talk about mother, daughters, and body image? Because that's uh, a book no. I was going to recommend. <laughs> no, I don't know that book. But I was going to say it's a children's book called Her Body Ken. Oh. And um, I cried when I was reading it to Elodie and it was about this little girl I'm going to cry right now and it's about this little girl saying all the things that she can do and just like and that her body you know doesn't matter she can shop at any store with the clothes she can put any clothes that she wants to wear because you know regardless of what people say she can wear any color she wants to wear Um, her body can do all these different things even if it doesn't look like this body you know her body can do it too in a different way and it was just like Elodie loves it. I brought it home and I told her, Elodie, I have a special present for you. Mommy got you a new book. And I was reading it and I was thinking to myself, this is going to be my new go-to tool (laughs) for those bad body image days. Because I was reading it and I was thinking to myself, where was this when I was a child? You know, where was this conversation? Where was this um, round-bellied ballet dancer in my world? Because that was not in my world. I mean... That no, wasn't... we just had those hundred calorie packs. That's what we had yeah. instead of that book. <laughs> I know, yeah. and it was—it's just it. That book. If people don't have it, you should you should get it and read it to yourself. It's not just for children; it's for adults too. <laughs> um, but I, as a postpartum person too, and a postpartum body, I relate so deeply to the things that you're saying and the tools that you're using because they are like. Um, you have to find ways to remind yourself that your body is incredible and it's done yeah. incredible things. Whether you've had a child or not, your body is still incredible and has done incredible things. And um, it should be more accessible for people to be able to tap into that. And there should be more tools that that people can um, have access to 
So I'd love to hear how do you help some of your clients, you know, tap into that in themselves and become closer to their body and its incredibleness. Yeah. Um, cueing spaciousness and giving permission to feel the weight of your frame are huge tools I rely on. Um, doesn't have to just be in a yoga practice. I mean, I start all of my bar classes with like a deep moment to find your breath, to locate it in your body um, and to practice proprioception even to locate yourself in the room that you're in, whether in pre-COVID days we were in a crowded studio or you're at home on the little corner of hardwood floor next to your bed. Um, I think that, and maybe that's like a direct response to a life um, injuring myself in choreography and dance rehearsals and performances um, because I have dislocated my knee I've lost count of how many times I've done that dancing um, so I'll talk and a lot of this is like a, a specifically trauma-informed strategy so I think I always just having the dance background when I first started teaching in I guess 2013 I was always really talking about embodiment specifically and not just the like representation of the asana, the shape that visually we're supposed to be in, but what does the shape feel like and um, what would exploring safe alignment that's not one size fits all feel like in your actual body? Like, what can you feel here? I'm not telling you what you should be feeling. Your legs should be shaking. Your arms should be tired. You should be resting now. Your heart rate should be elevated. I never, ever, I mean, I'm sure I do. I'm sure I slip up. I'm sure I fuck up all the time. Um, but my goal is to never ever tell you what you should be feeling or to gaslight you into thinking that I know best how it feels to be in your body and what you need in that particular moment. Oh, that is such a problem with like <laughs> every, I mean, it's funny that you mentioned that in yoga because people think of yoga as like, oh, here's a more gentle form of movement, but it does happen there. And it happens like that, but on like such a larger scale in other kinds of like fitness activities. I mean, even when you're thinking about growing up as a kid and you were dancing or playing on a sports team or whatever it is, and the coach is like, you should be breathing hard now, like your legs should be hurting. Or, you know, if you think about now, if you go into a gym or even if you're doing like an at-home workout and the, you know, thin cis white <laughs> instructor is like, this is where you should be feeling it. And you should yeah. be seeing this in your abs. And you look down and you're like, yeah. What? What? <laughs> what are you yeah. talking about? Oh my yeah, god! I don't see that. I see problem. fritter. <laughs> yeah, I know. I also, I am really proud of the crazy playlist that I make. Hopefully, some clients will listen to this and be like, "Yeah, I love Barton's playlist." Um, I love, love, love music, and that's definitely the dancer in me. I spend hours making like a forty-five minute playlist. And I think about the ebbs and flows, just like I would think about choreographing a piece of dance. Um, like if we're doing something that's probably gonna be exhausting and we're going to sort of the like peak of the movement and we get a minute of rest, I'll match the intonation of my voice. I'll get louder, I'll get more hype in line with the music and then I'll take it down. Um, so I do think like some of the kind of tools of the trade just in creating an effective class atmosphere can be really important to facilitate embodiment and give you permission um, to kind of like maybe push a little harder, maybe back the fuck off and take a break, um, but just to have fun and to like see what is possible and what feels like permission and not punishment. Um, I want to go back to one thing that you said before is like feeling like you're getting gaslit by your instructor. Mm. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Because it happens yes. all the time, but I don't think people have actually like put a name to that face. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to use my favorite, least favorite example, which is crow pose. So if you like me are a current or ex power yogi, especially the journey into power sequence. Yep. Hey girl. Um, crow will be called at a particular time in the practice and, oh, or you could just do Malasana. You could like just take squat, but don't wait, don't wait, do it now. Um, so as I said, I'm five foot two. I 
not even. <laughs> That's being generous, <laughs> like five, one and three quarters. I carry excess weight in my belly. I've got big thighs. I've got beefy arms, but my arms are short and crow is an arm balance. No matter how many props I add or take away, I've tried a tower of blocks. I've tried it on a wall. I've tried a weird block tower under my head. I've played with like weird wheels and inversion benches. No matter what, that shape is never going to work in my body. Even if I lost a hundred pounds all in my belly, I do not have the ratio of limb to torso to make that shape possible ever. And I know this and I accept it. However, every single time I go to one of those classes, I am told, no, you can do it. You have to just practice more. Practice in the shape will come. Practice makes practice. False. Some of us will never be able to do crow. And what the hell does it matter? Like, why do I have to do crow to be an effective yogi or have an effective experience of my embodiment or to be an effective practitioner? It's nonsense. It's nonsense. I wouldn't tell you you had to do a split or you had, and like, <laughs> you know, benefits and like anatomy and alignment aside what purpose does doing crow serve does it make the world a better place does it make you a more effective communicator or a more loving partner or parent no it's just a shape it's just a damn shape I love that so much like what is it contributing <laughs> to society but you know what it is doing and this is where I, I think it's important not crow itself, but that type of language around um, that like really insulting comment. And I've been in those classes. I was trained and also taught some of those types of classes before I knew better um, because I was trained by certain people and, you know, I didn't know, um, I didn't think about it to that, to that extent, you know, but to, but the, I also hate crow for a lot of reasons too. And it's always been a difficult thing for me, but you know what I don't like about that even more than just the, the pose, like the, that all or nothing kind of mentality about either you hit it or you're working on it or you're not, is this whole idea that it pulls you away from what you just said is your embodiment, right? And like getting you closer to your body. And then, you know what you end up thinking? That message that's subtly in there and, oh, keep practicing and the shape will come. What you're saying is, what you're actually saying is, the more you practiced, your body will change. And once your body changes, then you have access to this shape. And that is so dangerous and so toxic for people for people who have, whether whether or not you have disordered eating or you have an eating disorder itself, that's just bad for your body image in general. It's basically saying, I can't, I can't go to this place or hit this pose in something that maybe you really care about. Maybe you really love the practice of yoga and maybe it's something that you really want to continue doing. And then to feel like you're not welcome until your body gets to this place and you're able to get to this type of shape it just feeds a negative um, body image com conversation and internal dialogue. And then, then you don't feel confident and comfortable going to your instructor and talking about that, you yeah. know? And, and it also says, this is not for you. This practice is not for you. And I think that's also why, um, that's why I also see so many conversations and movements for social justice as inevitably and necessarily arising from when you start to have this particular conversation because just talking about me who's a white woman cisgendered heterosexual if I feel that marginalized in the practice by just for my body size alone what then happens to folks who navigate the world with actual violent consequences for merely existing in their marginalized body, whether that's gender, expression, sexuality, race, ethnicity, immigration status, et cetera, et cetera, forever. And I think I get so like, frankly, furious about it when it comes to yoga, because the physical asana is one limb of yoga. You cannot call yourself a practitioner of yoga if you are perpetuating violence in your classes. And that's a strong word, but it is, violent it is oppressive to gaslight someone into thinking that something is wrong with the way that they 
exist in their body, period, full stop. And I think that's the quote for the show. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's the title of this episode. (laughs) Um, Perpetuating violence in yoga. (laughs) And also perpetuating like body image. I think it does go back so much to that too. It is, it is violence in every way. And I think you're right. Full stop. Right. Um, I can't help but keep going back to that body image too. And, and how much that, then you leave that class and the, it's not just, I think from an instructor's standpoint, it's not just this one comment, this one, this one moment in a, in a 90 minute class. It's what happens after class, what that person takes away from that, how that informs the way they go about their day, how that informs the way that they move, how much they eat, what they do from then on. Every, that one comment has a, a really long-term ripple effect that I think a lot of times is really ignored in the fitness world. And um, I'm just so glad that there's instructors like you out there who are changing that dialogue and making it a safe and more inclusive environment for everybody. I would like to add too that sometimes those comments are way more explicit and overt. Um, Like the day after Halloween, you have to do these crunches to earn the candy you got last night. Um, Super Bowl Sunday, have to do a 30 second plank before you eat (laughs) like a beautiful heaping pile of wings. Um, There's so, so, so much nasty, insidious stuff that gets said. And like, I mean, fitness is an industry like any other, especially with things pivoting on Instagram. It's also very much about like persona and celebrity and um, performance. So these like, cute seeming um like marketable terms just get kind of passed around like it's all this nonsense jibber jabber that can be so damaging but we just think it's cute and it's like the industry standard so we just keep saying it and doing it and showing you what we eat in a day and eating our quest bars and drinking our green smoothies like and that's fine if you want to eat that stuff but like maybe if you're a fitness instructor you don't have to catalog your frankly own disordered eating for your clients. That's not within your scope of practice. That's not what you were hired to do. That's not what you're credentialed in. It's wildly inappropriate and it's hurtful. But they think they're credentialed in it because yes. the, their qualifications, especially all these like Instagram influencers and whatever are like, well, I look this way. Mm-hmm. So I am credentialed to be able to give you fitness advice and supplement advice and nutrition advice, which is really just them saying like, oh, if you want to look like me, you have to eat and work out like me, which like science, that doesn't work. (laughs) Right. You're not selling your genetic sequence. Like you can't sell that. And I think that's like, just to talk about influencer culture in general, like, you know, there's this um, myth that celebrities from the early aughts, like Paris Hilton or the Kardashian family are famous for being famous. They're not. They're famous for leveraging their beauty into the standard of what we think a beauty is supposed to be and then erasing the fact of resources financial resources personal trainers private chefs um night nurses if they're moms nannies drivers personal assistants and they're telling you if you buy this skin cream or buy this waist trainer or these hair vitamins, you will look like them. And that is not true at all. And it just, it's like, I talked about the goalpost being moved and all of that, I think toxicity of sort of the veneer of influence is absolutely pervasive in the fitness industry because you're saying my body, my hot body with my ripped abs is my business card. And I'm going to tell you that if you do exactly as I do and exactly as I say, you too can be me. And then, and why do we want to do that? Because we want all the social like accolades and rewards that come from having the quote unquote hot body, the privilege it affords you, the access it gets you, the sponsorship deals, the ability to go down the store and buy clothing that will fit you and not have to pay more for extra fabric or have to do a special order online. All of that. There's just, yeah. Ugh, and then I get back on the social justice bandwagon because 
why do we privilege certain bodies over others and give them more resources and withhold resources from marginalized folks? I could have the social media conversation all day because it drives me up the wall. <laughs> like, oh, just, <laughs> I like, it. Have, whenever I start talking about this, I have trouble forming my thoughts and my sentences correctly because it is perpetuated in every single industry with like the institutionalized fat phobia and institutionalized racism and institutionalized just like discrimination and like lack of diversifying resources for people in any of these marginalized groups. And then you go back to the fact where like we think most people would think about yoga as like, oh, okay, like this is a good way to get into movement. You know, like if you are recommend, like if somebody comes to me or Christina, right? And they're like, I want to start incorporating more movement as a form of, you know, mental health or stress management or whatever it is, right? We're obviously not fitness instructors directing them exactly what to do, but if they don't like doing, you know, at home body weight workouts or, you know, weight things or running or walking or whatever it is, it's like, okay, well, let's try some, you know, gentle stretching or like, let's try some yoga. But then the problem is they try and find like at home yoga classes. And when you Google like yoga on YouTube, you're finding the exact same straight looking person. And then when you have this language, that's basically gaslighting you to say, oh, you know, back to the body image conversation, you'll be able to get into this shape once you keep practicing, AKA once your body is a different size, and then they start to feel like, okay, well maybe this movement isn't for me. When yoga is supposed to be and claims to be inclusive for as many people as it can, but then if you are if you feel like you're being excluded from the most inclusive practice, you're like, okay, well maybe movement just isn't for me at all. Yep, yep, yep. Which then like is a vicious cycle because we say like, if you're in a fat body, you have to exercise, you have to do these things. And then once you get there, we say, no, this actually isn't for you. Hey, why aren't you exercising? It's just a completely like perfect closed loop. Which is why it's so important. I, I feel like I we talk about this a lot, Dana, is about how important it is to have weight inclusive care, right? And that in care, I, I talk about it a lot from like a medical standpoint and from a nutritional standpoint, but I think it has to cross all bounds, right? Because all of these pieces are part of, um, of, of what Dana and I refer to often as like health promoting behaviors, right? Like having movement, having nutrition, having like, you know, intentional eating. We talk about that in our four pillars a lot. Um, and having, um, all of these different pieces and having, you know, practitioners in your life that are, are all aligned, you know, like aligned with the same type of weight inclusive message can be really difficult and, and really difficult to find. Right. And so that's why it's always important to us to provide people with the resources for different types of, um, of places they can go so they can feel included where they can feel safe and where they can have the messages that they're hearing, either it's on this podcast or they're hearing on your Instagram or on our Instagram or their carefully curated body neutral support, <laughs> supportive environment that they they're working so hard to, um, to curate on their social media feed. But at the same time, not having it undone in one YouTube video, on one class, in one place, in one conversation with your doctor that pulls you straight back to that, 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 um, that inner dialogue that can be so dangerous of saying, I have to change my body, right? It's like that one conversation can do undo it all. And, um, that I, I find that to be so challenging as a practitioner in this aligned with this, you know, in this weight inclusive care, haze aligned, it's really difficult for me to basically say, why are you, why are you undoing all of the work that I'm doing every time? Why do I have to reinforce to this person that it's okay that your body is the way that it is? And then all we need to do together is work on what, what makes you feel good? What works with your body? How do we want to incorporate different behaviors? And I think that's, what's really, that's really frustrating to me in, in shows I think honestly how important it is to have weight inclusive care on all levels of care because 
you know, we think that we're saying, people think that they're saying something innocent, but the thread that they're pulling is nothing but innocent. It's a thread that goes so deep down and it goes down to generational levels and it, it just pulls you straight back down into this body, what Dana and I call a body image spiral, you know, like you just fall into it. And it's so nice to hear um, someone in this space um, and like you said earlier, like, you know, a authority in this space, you know, like you're here, you're working, you're credentialed in this and um, talking about their own body image days. And I really loved that in the very beginning, that was the first thing you said. Well, on that day, Christina, that's how I felt. Yeah. <laughs> Yesterday, not so much the reality. And I think that's really, I can't thank you enough for being so honest and so open about that because I think those are the conversations that are largely missed. And I think that shows what's really important to me and Dana is always showing one, this is the problem, but what's the solution? And sometimes the solution is knowing that you're going to be faced with the problem again and again and again. And how do we build that inner like reservoir of resiliency to face that, that problem again and again and again, and how do we build from it? And, um, so we're, we're kind of wrapping up here, but I do have another question, like before I think our final question that's way more light and you'll enjoy it because this has been a heavy conversation for sure. <laughs> no light Great. conversation here. It's like a deep conversation. Um, but there's something that I wanted to come back to because, you know, we're both in postpartum bodies and I think a lot of our listeners are probably in postpartum bodies and there's just so much pressure put on people in general terms of body image ideals, but then you tack on postpartum and the expectations and the pressure is increased, I feel, and I know you feel like tenfold. Um, and what do you feel like needs to change in the messaging directed towards postpartum parents um, to create a more safe and inclusive environment for people who are going through such big life and body changes? If you're familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which I know is like not everyone's favorite model, um, my experience of postpartum was just slipping lower and lower and lower down the rungs where my own most essential needs, like emptying my bladder when I needed to empty it, or like washing my hair when it had spit up in it, were things that were rendered all of a sudden inaccessible to me. So truly, I wish that appearance was censored from those conversations like literally a brain is flipped in your switch and you forget how to use language like that and asking new parents not just how's the baby how are they sleeping how are they eating um, I love that milestone picture you posted how are you friend how do you feel are you getting the support that you need and of course in the pandemic that's a very different landscape you can't come over and just hold and nuzzle your friend's baby. Um, like, have you showered today? Can I send over a Grubhub delivery? Can I set up a meal train for you? Um, yeah, has anyone given you a hug today? Like, I just find that for me personally, becoming a parent has been so bewildering um, in a way that I forgot. Not only self-care seems like a self-indulgence, self-keeping, all of a sudden can become a crisis. Um, so not, oh, you look great. Or like, are you fitting into your jeans? How do you actually feel? What immediate needs can I help you get met right now? No, it's, um, it's so true. I like how you said self-keeping, you know, because you're right, self-care um, self can feel, like you said, really indulgent. And I like the idea of self-keeping. I, I refer to that as self-preservation, right? Like, what am I doing to preserve myself? <laughs> To preserve myself and my sanity but I think it is really shocking about um how you kind of how in a lot of ways our body becomes a spectacle in pregnancy and then postpartum too like in pregnancy it's like oh my gosh your belly's growing let me touch it well no don't like first of all and then and then afterwards it's oh I bet you're proud of yourself or ooh, have you tried doing anything about that like I've heard both, you know, um, directed towards me and directed towards others. And 
Um, I think honestly, just to like, if we, I would love so much if we could just, like you said, forget about all that. And why don't we have a real conversation about, Hey guys, have you slept? Yeah. <laughs> you know, have you had a meal prepared for you? You know, like I know, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. All of these types of things that would be, um, and it's true. It's it's so rare. Um, I I can only think of really a couple people who really did that for me in the beginning. Yeah. And I remember the first time someone asked me after I had Elodie how I was doing, and then when I said, "Oh, I'm good," when they said to me, "Shut up, how are you actually yeah. doing?" Yeah. I cried. Yeah. I literally cried, and oh, I yeah. said, "I don't think anyone's asked me how I'm actually doing." Yeah. yeah. In a really really long time. And so I love that as the messaging and it, I like that it's like almost like a, it's like almost like an internal message too, like to shut out some of those conversations that people are saying and how to kind of do that. And um, yeah. yeah, it's true. And that's why I said, not even like, what do you need? What needs can I help you meet? What needs can I facilitate meeting for you? And be specific, give specific examples. Um, there is one thing I wanted to add that just occurred to me, if that's okay. Um, when we were going back to sort of the stuff we said at the beginning about body positivity as the spectrum and it's day by day. And, you know, I really believe as a movement and fitness instructor, it's like iteration by iteration, like triangle one day might feel like shit. And the next day it might feel like the most spacious, beautiful, powerful shape ever. Um, but I think that's why I try really hard to not even strive for or obsess over body positivity as a concept because body positivity literally means having a positive experience about your body and that for me can keep me stuck in ed behaviors because maybe i feel the most positive about my body when i'm fucking starving or maybe i feel the most positive about my body when there's 60 pounds less on my frame so i do think that positivity can be hierarchical so when do you feel negative about your body? When do you feel positive? And I think that for me, that's why neutrality is just so important and so powerful. We couldn't agree more. In fact, uh, body neutrality is one of our our four pillars for full hard feeding um, because of that, because we didn't, we, we specifically didn't want to align with um, body positivity itself because it, it can feel kind of toxic and it's, yeah. um, and also it can feel really unachievable and, um, in so many ways. And so thank you for clarifying that. That is really important to make that distinction. Well, thank you so much, Larkin, for coming on our podcast today and talking to us about your journey um, through through finding that liberative power within um, in the fitness industry. And I wanted to, we wanted to hear rather, um, where can people find you? How can they get in touch with you? And how can they... Um, learn more about what you're doing and how they can work with you thanks um for having me and yeah for directing folks towards me um you can find me on the interwebs i'm at vinyasa vixen on instagram um i have a newsletter i would love you to subscribe and yeah that's about it oh and i would like to add one more children's book recommendation which is i love all of me and if you are having a bad body day, it's a beautiful little picture book about loving your tummy bump and your waggle rump and your licky tongue and your legs that run. And it's my daughter's favorite. Oh, that's adorable. Oh it's my really God. cute. <laughs> Going to purchase immediately. Just <laughs> like putting this in my cart right now. Yes. <laughs> in cart. Put in cart now. Um, yeah. Well, thank you so much. And um there will be something additional in the show notes that Larkin's going to share with us um, that your own little downloadable kind of get into your body kind of meditation pre pre movement thing. Yeah. Yeah. Guide. All right, guys. Well, thank, thank you, you so Larkin. much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hey friends, it's Christina. Thanks for listening to the wholehearted eating podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please share with your family and friends. Subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and if you can, leave a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. This really helps spread the word so more people can find the show and learn how to break out of diet culture, the body image spiral, and find a more peaceful relationship with food in their bodies using wholehearted eating. If you're interested in learning how we can work with me or Dana for one-on-one nutrition counseling, or you want to check out one of our self-paced courses, head over to wholeheartedeating.com. See you next week.